Uh, Genesis chapter 25 is our text tonight. I'm not going to try to read it all um, just straight through, but we will um, be working our way in and out of this passage. It's such a, a pivotal passage. There's, as you work through a book like Genesis, it's a long narrative. There are certain texts that you've got to understand because it's going to show you the rest uh, the rest of the way. It's going to show you different things that will help you understand the next following text. So Genesis 25 is a very, very important text to understanding uh, many of the events that continue to happen in uh, Genesis. So let's pray and ask the Lord to help us uh, this, this evening. Father, we are so grateful for your word. We're joyful to look into it now and know and what you have to tell us and apply it to our lives and think through these different individuals, Lord, that this Bible is speaking about, but ultimately knowing that you're in control, that none of these events are outside of you. They, you have your hand on all of this, Lord, and you are going to bring about your purposes, and, and that is summed up in that Jesus Christ is going to come through these individuals, and he's going to come to the earth, and he will be the only perfect one in these patriarchs and matriarchs that we study they are not the perfect ones. They need the perfect one, much as we do. And so, Lord, give us uh, eyes to see your glory and your truths as we study uh, a very uh, deep and uh, concerning text, Lord, on the behavior of man. But yet we trust you through things. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, along that line of that prayer, sometimes I think our Sunday school teachers... Um, or even our Sunday school curriculum at times as we grew up were not always helpful. <laughs> um, they often, if you remember, focused on the man and not the person of God. They would miss the greatness of God. I, I remember coming out and thinking, you know, dare to be a Daniel and David and Jacob, how great Jacob was. He wrestled with God, you know, and, all, and, and yet, then you go and study the text and you go, these guys are a mess. <laughs> They're like my family. There's all kinds of problems, right? And you start to understand that, and that's what helps you understand the greatness of God. That though they do everything possible to try to screw everything up, God puts it all together and brings it through. And that's what Jesus, I mean, the, the words of Luke 24 are so important as we study the Old Testament narrative. Luke 24, verse 27 reminds us that he says everything in the Old Testament is about me. And he says it again in chapter four, uh, verse 44 of, of Luke 24, to remind the disciples on the Aramaeus road there. You remember that great conversation? Love to see the replay of that one. When he speaks of all the things, and he says, they all speak about me, the law, the prophets, the Psalms, all of those things. And so the greatness of God is, is beautiful. So the Old Testament reveals flaws of men and women. We, we now know that, don't we? But the graciousness of God um, shows that their faith was true. God gave them a faith. The New Testament shows that. And that's why we study the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11 and we go, wow, he doesn't remember any of the things that they did in the Old Testament because it is based on that grace and faith that God gives them. Now, I think another reason the Old Testament shows us the sinfulness and helplessness of the saints is to show that God will prevail despite our sinfulness. I think that's such an important point. Um, and we don't rest on those laurels like, well, I'll just live any way I want, and then God will prevail. Oh, I promise you, as these folks seen, they didn't live according to God, and all kinds of problems happened, and we're still dealing with them. You want to mess around with sin, even as a Christian? You're going to find all kinds of problems that come along with that. Um, but through it all, we see the greatness of God despite their evil deeds at times and their lack of faith. Now, Certainly, there are Old Testament types within the uh, scriptures, say like a Joseph. I, I don't think I can think of anywhere where you see blatant sin in Joseph's life. And so he is, they say, you know, we use him as like a type. He's a reference to Christ uh, type, we call him in the theological world. Um, yet, if we were to boast on Joseph and he showed up, he'd be really mad at you. <laughs> he, he would want God only to have the credit for those things. Now, Remember how, how, as we study this, and one of the things I always remind myself, and I love to remind people when I teach Old Testament narratives, because it's easier for us to go, how can they do that? <laughs> how, how could they do that? They've seen God do all these things. How could they do that? Mm, 
How'd you like your life written down for the last 2,000 years for people to see, or the next 2,000 years for people to read? Ooh, <laughs> think about that. Every mistake you made or lack of faith, lack of judgment, stupid things we've all done, record it down. Uh, yeah, um, go ahead. Let Jacob have that front and center here. So remember those things as we go through this, even though it is disheartening sometimes when you see the way the patriarchs and matriarchs act. Now, as we continue our study through Genesis, we will always see the failures of men and the greatness of God. We'll see that all the way through. And we will see where sin makes life really difficult. It's so important to learn that. Sin makes life difficult. Yet, yet, God is in those situations. He's not responsible for them, but he uses them. And every one of us could go around the room and talk about dumb things we did, but yet how God used that in some way sometimes. It's an amazing thought. Now, context. We're dropping into Genesis 5 here. um, And we're in the life of Isaac and the birth of his twin sons. Now, you think about Isaac himself, he's, in his young life, he, he seems to have this uh, understanding of this covenant promise. He, he, he's, this, he's the beginning of the seed, he's the first child of the promise, right? And, and in Genesis 22, we saw this amazing act of faith, right? Dad, well, you know, we got the fire, <laughs> We're building an altar, uh, where's the lamb? Well, Lord provide. Next thing you know, he's tied in like this, you know. Amazing faith by Isaac. There's strong character. There's great spiritual example within when we study Isaac. However, after God provides a wife for Isaac, his life seemingly drifts to some faithless times, like so many of the patriarchs. And they're... There are some course corrections um, at times, but yet we see that he even, I mean, even we're seeing this, this text today, he seems to reject Jacob in favor Esau, who God rejected. You go, whoa, come on, Jacob, wake up. But that's what we do. We often, because of our own personal desires, our our personal circumstances that become greater to us than the will of God, we will often find ourselves on the other side of what God is doing when we are not careful. And so I think there's just great lessons to learn. One of the things I thought about as I was writing this, that there's a correlation a little bit between Isaac and Solomon. Both had very good starts, didn't they? They both lived for God in a great way, but as their lives wore on and they moved away from this God-given spiritual wisdom, they, all, they both fell into kind of a lack of trust of God and caused all kinds of problems within their own families. But Isaac and Solomon did make uh, turns towards the end of their life, and, um, but their consequences are there. Solomon's consequences to the kingdom of Israel are irreversible. And I think also with Jacob a little bit here as well. So let's look at a couple of thoughts as we go down through here in your notes. These are just large thoughts, and we'll see how far we get in this text. This is a, this is a profound text. Number one, Abraham's lives, li, Abraham's lives will final, lives finally, what, how do I write this? Abraham's lives his final years with blessing and consequence. Can't read my own writing. Abraham lives his final years with blessing and consequences. So after Sarah dies, she's buried in the cave where, where Abraham had purchased this land, right? He's this um, uh, Machpelak, Machpelak uh, this place where he now owns. Remember, uh, the sons of Heth wanted to give it to him, but he would not. He wanted to purchase those. So now he owns a piece of ground. Israel owns a piece of ground within the promised land. And of course, this is where Sarah is buried and... Um, The family is now in the promised land. But notice verse 1. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. Now, probably um, sometime after the marriage, if we figure up the years, I worked very hard to kind of figure up the years here. It seems that after the marriage of Isaac uh, to Rebekah, Abraham marries this woman named Keturah. her nationality is unknown. The Bible doesn't tell us who it is. Most people I read, the guys that really study the lineages of the Bible, think she's one of the concubines. 
one of the handmaidens that was there. And they link it to 1 Chronicles 132, where it talks about her sons as sons of the concubines. So she probably was in the family. She was probably very well known by El Abraham and the rest of the family, someone that had been around the camp for quite some time. And so they were used to her, because usually there's a lineage with her. Look at verse 5 and 6. We'll come back to some other ones here in a minute. 5 and 6, now Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, that would be these sons and some probably others, Abraham gave gifts while he was still living. But look at this, and then he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the land of the east. Now, in these verses, Abraham was about 137 years old when Sarah dies, right? Genesis 23.1 tells us she's 127. We know that he's 10 years older than her. Um, so Isaac is now probably 40 years old when he meets and marries Rebekah. And Abraham's 175 when he dies in verse 7, right? We'll see that. Um, there were, so look at verse 7. These are the years of Abraham's life that he lived, 175 years. So it appears likely that Abraham married Keturah after Isaac was married to Rebekah. Now notice that he fathers six named sons from Keturah, in addition to Isaac from Sarah and Ishmael from Hagar, and that was over 70 years ago. So think about this. Um, he's, uh, Ishmael's probably 70 by this time. Now, Verses 5 and 6 tell us that Abraham acknowledges these other sons, right? And he gives them some monetary or substantial gifts. You notice that in, that in those verses? However, it is clear that he sends them away from who? Isaac. He does not want competition with the son, the son of promise, right? The seed that was promised. He sees that and knows that about Isaac. Now, the name of the other sons and their descendants are mentioned from time to time in biblical history, um, most often are referred to as neighbors and a lot of times enemies. So if you look at verses uh, 2 through 4, this is the list of these uh, six sons here. Now, Abraham lives at least 35 years after Isaac is married to Rebekah. He probably lives to see uh, Jacob and Esau. Imagine that. He sees his grandsons born, these twins. And Rebekah um, and Isaac are probably married around 20 years when the twins are born. Now, this most likely allows Abraham just to spend some time with his grandsons, maybe 15 or so years. And doubtlessly, I thought about this today, I thought he probably saw the rivalry between these boys. And we're going to talk about this deep rivalry that was in them, even in the womb. Now, verses 7 um, through 10, the Bible says all the years of Abraham's life that he lived were 175 years. Abraham breathed his last, died of a ripe old age, an old man satisfied with life, and he was gathered to his people. Then his sons, Isaac and Ishmael, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zophar the Hittite, facing Mamre. In the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth, and there Abraham buried, was buried with his wife, Sarah. So what a uh, good reminder that they're already in the promised land and they're buried. Now, isn't it interesting? Ishmael and Isaac somehow get reunited here to bury their father. You know, you, you ever been to those uh, funerals or memorial services where there's been some great separations between people and get them in the same room? Those are always fun. <laughs> they're real fun for pastors to be involved with. Um, but this probably had a little bit of tension to it, but here they are, they're going to bury dad. And Ishmael's probably around 90 years old when Abraham dies. And Ishmael's 12 sons, they are a buddy nation of themselves. And they're fun to track down. They don't have time to go through them all, but Ishmael dies at 137, and his sons, all buddy nations of themselves, they all up in northern Arabia. Uh, they're still there today. <laughs> you need to understand that. And at the end of verse 17 and 18, we kind of see how, well, we really see what God says about Ishmael. Verse 17, these are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. Then look at this. They settled in Havalia, Assur, which is east of Egypt, as one goes to Assyria. Now look at this last law of phrase. He settled in defiance to all his relatives. This is really a mark of Ishmael. 
and soon to be a mark of Esau. We'll see that as well. Everything they did was in defiance to the rest of the family. Now, notice back in verses 2 through 4, these other six sons. I want to deal with them just real quickly because there's, it's, it's, if you're like me and love history, it's fun to track some of these names down, and I'll point just a few out here. Notice here's these six named sons that are in these verses here. Most likely these sons were born in these early years of, of Sarah, um, before, after Sarah's death, these early years and after the marriage, so that Jacob got to know some of these sons. There are significant names here, and most of them have to do with enemies of Israel, but there's a few that you might know. Notice Midian there in verse 4, the sons of Midian. Anybody remember where they come up again? Remember Moses flees? He ends up in the wilderness, and guess who he runs into? He runs into a great leader of the Midianite people, and there he gains his wife from him. And, uh, and then Jethro comes, uh, comes into play with Moses later on and really gives him great counsel on leadership as he's trying to deal with these millions of people that have come out of the nation of Israel. So there's the Midianites. Now, they're not all good because there's times if you follow the Midianites down, you'll see that the Israelites fight with them every once in a while. There's some great battles between them. There's also one more name you might recognize there. Notice the name Sheba in verse 2. This man goes on to be the great nation of Sheba. And guess who comes from that? The queen of Sheba who visits Solomon. Do you remember that? 1 Kings chapter 10. This is where this is all coming from. Um, and these guys, all these guys, all these sons of Keturah, they all settle in uh, the southwest Arabia, known kind of as Yemen and that area right there right now. Okay, So that's where all, all they go. Let, let me give one point of application here before I leave this point. It doesn't take you long to study God's word and realize that he lays down principles for people to follow. And when those principles get broken... There's all kinds of problems that come, um, particularly when it comes to marriage and children. And is it hard to look at our own society and our own homes and our families, even that we're, that our family members, when, when God's word is not obeyed? And, and too often as pastors we see this where uh, we see a couple wanting to get married and we go, whoa, 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 we hold the whole on, we got to work here a little while, get ready for this, or... or or there's just a defiance in those things and they go against maybe what their parents have even said. There's so much problems that come from it. And every time I study the Old Testament like this, it reminds me that disobedience to God's word and lack of faith in him that he can take care of you always brings about tremendous consequences. Now, let me say this. There's often I've sat with people who have gone through some very, very hard things and they go, man, we just disobeyed God. We shouldn't have done this. Um, we should have trusted him. And, and I appreciate that. And it's great they get to that point. Now we pray for grace in the consequences. And we, and we learn to obey even in those difficult times. To learn to obey God because there's always joy and there's always blessing and obedience. And anytime you get into disobedience, there are all kinds of problems. Just, just think about multiple wives that, that Abraham gets into. Um, and and Ken, the, the Old Testament doesn't have... Uh, a one-woman standard type there, but it isn't hard to study the Bible, the Old Testament, and find any man. You take me any man who had multiple wives, I'll tell you a man who had multiple problems. Now, we're not pointing at the wives. Please don't throw anything at me. But it causes problems. You think, well, King David had a great life. No, he didn't. His life was miserable at times. Son raised up to try to kill him. Solomon's sons rejected his counsel and divided the kingdom. I mean, just go down through the line. Anytime you have multiple women, there's multiple problems. And it's true today. Guys, stick with your wife from your youth. Repent of sin that would drag you away from what God has given you. Sin wants to destroy things. It wants to destroy homes. It wants to destroy marriages. It wants to destroy and we have to be aware of that, dangers of that. And we see that in the Old Testament over and over. And we see it today where 
kids have such a bad view of God. Not, it's not all their parents' fault, but the parents did not stay together in a way that God designed, and so they now view God in a wrong way often. Now, none of this is not overcomable through the grace of God, but it is difficult. And so, as I study these, these Old Testament passages, I go, oh, Lord, protect the marriage, protect my marriage, protect the marriages of our church, protect the marriages of our family members, all those who claim the name of Christ cause us to walk with you and trust you because there's nothing but destruction comes when we take our eyes off you. Hayward said, you know, chains are off and they stay off, and that's very true. But I think often Christians will stick their heads back through the news sometimes because of sinful decisions. And so, uh, just a point, just to think through here. You know, the great hymn writer, John Samanish, said, Trust and obey, for there's no other way <laughs> to be joyful in Jesus, right? Or however the rest of that goes, right? Man, you want to lose your joy? Disobey. So, just, just some thoughts there as we look at um, the problems that go on. Number two, two nations given from our sovereign God, but human responsibility is not dissolved. I want to be clear on this. Look at verse 19. Now, these are the records of the generation of Isaac, Abraham's son. Son, Abraham became the father of Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel of Armin, of Padam Aram, the sister of Laban, the Armin, to be his wife. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren, and the Lord answered him, and Rebekah uh, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is so, why then am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two people will be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other. And the older shall serve the younger. Now, clearly something big is happening here. <laughs> like Sarah, Rebekah is barren again. Right, Just like the long years of Sarah, here she goes, probably we figure somewhere around 20 years where she could not conceive. And I think this is the reason why, is God again is proving, look, this seed is not going to come from you. You are not going to do this. I'm going to do this. And he loves to get the glory, right? And we love to try to take it at times. And so he's going to provide in a miraculous way and bring about his sovereign will. Now, notice in the text, Isaac, and this is one of the last times we see some real spiritual leadership out of Isaac. Isaac intercedes on behalf of his wife, and the Lord opens the womb of Rebekah. He goes and prays for his wife. His wife is hurting, his wife is struggling, um, and the husband goes to Yahweh and says, Yahweh, help her. Don't rob her of this blessing of children. And, and you can hear the prayer almost of Isaac if you think through this. Now, Rebecca is pregnant, right? And she begins to sense a struggle within her womb. And she, and she longs or begins to inquire of the Lord. Now, think about this. She's never been pregnant before, but she knows something's not right. She says this. Notice in the text in verse 22. If it is so, why them am I this way? Something's not right. I, she didn't probably have sonograms going on. <laughs> she wasn't able to say, oh, there's two in there. But something's not right. And, and, and I think the most intriguing phrase, look at this. It says, she went to inquire of the Lord. Chase this one down the Hebrew just a little bit. It was fun to chase this down. Uh, yalak is the word that means she went. It's always used of a physical journey. Okay, and then you put it together with this word, we, we translate it inquire in the Hebrew, it's darash, um, which emphasizes this intense, careful search. So we get the idea that Rebecca is not merely just praying outside the tent or inside the tent somewhere and asking God for help here, but she possibly went on a journey somewhere. She, she, she got up and went somewhere away from her daily routine to seek out God to try to discover what's going on within her. Now, that's, that's quite interesting. Um, some of the theologians I read said maybe she went and searched, tried to search out Melchizedek that Abraham met with in Genesis 14, possibly a pre-incarnate Christ of some sort. But there's no evidence of any of that. All we know is she goes. So whatever the case may be, Rebecca seems to have left the normal routines of life and she makes an earnest effort to go meet with God. 
And I thought, wow, what a neat example Rebecca is here. And uh, I think that's something that we need to do from time to time. A good friend of mine had a church out in the middle of Nevada, and once a year he used to take his men out into the desert, and they spend three days just searching with God, praying and reading scriptures and, and spending time together. And he taught them to do those things. Have you ever done that? Have you ever said, I'm just going to go away for the weekend or the day or maybe a half a day. I'm going to take my Bible and I'm going to sit on the beach and read about God and search what he has for me. Now, I don't think you go out there and just go, well, I kept thumbing through. I never saw my name. You know, and, you know well, how do you do that, Scott? Well, in, in my own experiences is go and I just go and spend time with God. Just refresh my mind of who he is, his greatness. Think about his character and his person. Think about the glory of Christ and what he did. And every time you do that, you think about God and you put him in his exalted position that he has already through reading of the Psalms or reading on passages of the scriptures that exalt him, he will often direct your paths. David said that day and night he meditated on the law, the character of God. The law reflects the character of God. And there's times that you and I need to get away from all things. Hey, some of you make massive decisions. God's given you incredible responsibility with people and employees and life and money and and whatever's going on. All of us have uh, decisions we have to make. What I love about Rebecca is she goes out and she wants to inquire of God. And I think that's something what we probably should do more often. You ever fast? You ever fast and pray and just think through God? Um, fasting for us today is built around asking God to give us a hunger for him. And the way you do it is when you're fasting and you get hungry, you pray and say, God, cause me to hunger you more. And you hunger after him. And often God shows you his will through the word of God, through prayer as we trust and grow in him. And so set your mind on the person of Christ. Think about his glory and God, when you, when you pursue God, he'll show you where he's going. You pursue you, you may go in an opposite direction than where he's going. See the difference of that? And so I really encouraged by Rebecca in this text. Now, we'll see her sinfulness as well. She wants to mingle her hands and things every once in a while as well. But notice verse 23. The Bible says that now God tells her. He speaks to her, right? The Lord says to her, Yahweh says to her, he remember he went out and inquired and he gives her answer. There's two nations in your womb. Two peoples will be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. So Rebecca has spoken now to God and he's answered her. And, and, and that's amazing, right? And first, first thing is you're having twins, right? There's two people in you. Well, that's the first answer. You're having twins. Um, okay. Wow. Um, first, you know, she's, not, she's been barren all these years, and all of a sudden now twins. Well, the second thing is these twins are going to be competing. <laughs> and they're not just competing on the food chain. They're going to be a competing people. You can imagine, Rebecca, I was just want to know what's going on in here. <laughs> I got two nations in me. Two nations within this woman. And the struggle that she had sensed with herself was really happening. This was really, she, now, I mean, can you imagine? I just thought it was indigestion. There's two nations living in me. Uh, I mean, how did you go out and explain that to hubby? Hey, I came back from the doctor and, <laughs> you know, the problems I'm having? Well, there's two nations in me. <laughs> What? I mean, you, you could see that. And there's tension between these two infants, um, even in the womb, developing there. And this tension and struggle was for dominance over each other. And we'll see that as they come out. And think about it. This is going to impact for thousands of years. This little struggle is happening in the womb of Rebecca here. Now, one nation is going to be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Um, now, most importantly, when you read this little section in here, unlike the human custom, <laughs> the younger twin will rule over the descendants of the, of the older, right? And so this prophecy from the Lord, God is speaking, Yahweh is speaking prophecy to young Rebekah here, um, and she 
in, in, with the events that are going to be happening in the future. Hebrews 11 verifies this. Hebrews 11 verse 20, you just jot this down. By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, now listen to this, even regarding things to come. So this whole wrestling within there is, is prophetic. This prophetic truth is happening, right? So our sovereign God was speaking to Rebecca about these unborn twins who had no say in the decision. Right? That's what's amazing about this. Now look with me at verse 24. When, days, when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Hmm, just like God said, huh? Now the first came forth red all over like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau. And after his brother came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel, so his name was Jacob, and Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. When the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a peaceful man living in the tents. Now Isaac loved Esau because he had a, had a taste for gain, but Jacob, but, excuse me, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, one side note, I just have to say something here about life in the womb. I mean, think about this. These babies are in this womb, and they're not just some lump of tissue, is there, <laughs> going on here? I mean, they're already defined in their character a little bit. I, 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 we won't get personal here, but I've had women tell me, oh, I knew this one was a wild one while they were inside. <laughs> you know, flipping around, doing jump jacks and, and uh, jump rope with umbilical cord, whatever. Some of them are just crazy in there, right? They're jumping around. She knew something was crazy going on within her. And so I just love this and the fact that these children are known before they're born they, they have destinies before they're born. Um, they, they, have, they have a very different character, right? They come out and they're already very noticeably different, have a different demeanor about them very quickly. So I, I love this. And I think the child is clearly being developed by God. God develops children within the womb of a mother. And, and a mother has this miraculous little incubator that this is all going on in there. And yet people just say this is a lump of tissue. Read this story. Those, those are real people in there with, with real differences already. Uh, and so there's, it should be noted that this is a great passage uh, for life within the womb. Now, verse 23, God has uh, prophetically announced to Rebecca earlier that these twins would be born. Her, her, the children would struggle within their womb and now, now they've emerged. Um, the son would... Uh, one of the sons would serve the younger one. That He emerges first, right? So this older son comes out first, but he's going to serve the younger one. And he's obviously, as you see in the text, covered with some most unusual red hair. Um, he's a hairy baby. Um, so they name him Esau, which means red, hairy. He's red and hairy. That's, that's the Hebrew word there. And there's some important things that will come to that here in a second. Um, uh, apparently, while Esau is still attached to the umbilical cord, because he's not very far out, very clearly here, the second son emerges, and this child, the younger child, reaches out and grabs the heel of his brother. I mean, the Bible's so almost sometimes too graphic. I mean, you can see all this, can't you? Right? And so he's called Jacob, really literally called the heel grabber. He, he's already got a hold of older brother's heel already showing a picture of what is going to happen. So these two boys would become, uh, or have, have become the initial offspring of the promised seed. So Isaac is the promised seed. These are the initial offspring of that. And many to come will outnumber the sea, sand of the sea shores and the stars of the sky. These are the first two. But notice that the Bible says um, that Esau was loved by Jacob. Um, and so Esau becomes later feared, we'll see that in the coming chapters, and later hated, a hated enemy. And Jacob will become the nation of Israel. That's what's amazing about these two. Now, A, the two boys and the two very different outcomes. Apparently God intended for us to understand something about these two young men that he knew before their birth. Remember God's sovereign. But man is responsible for their sinfulness. So we want to look at some of this tonight and understand. And we're going to look at their lives and we're not going to see such prettiness about their lives. But in the end, we're going to realize that God's sovereign in all these things. 
Now, on the surface, verse 27 does not seem too important. Notice verse 27, when the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter and a man of the field, right? Anybody like that? Come on, Ryan. You know you like that. Yeah, okay, uh, don't get too close to him. Um, so his name, uh, and then, uh, I just lost it. But Jacob was a peaceful man living in tents. So, so on the outskirts, you look at this verse and you go, well, that sounds good. It just says Esau's a skillful hunter, a man of the field. Jacob is a peaceful man, meaning the word means actually mild or plain. Uh, and he's living in the tents, right? Doesn't really like the outside a whole lot, apparently. These two sons are very different, very different almost immediately. Um, we see that in them. And some, uh, some may think, well, well, maybe God favors uh, this Jacob because he's out there hunting and fishing and doing all those things. And, and I've seen some stuff where people, well, I like Jacob because he's this outdoors guy. But then you go, well, Timothy, Paul told Timothy, hey, exercise is, you know, a little profit, but godliness is, uh, is a great profit, right? So people say, oh, well, maybe, maybe we need to be more like, um, like Jacob is. And yet God praised King David and his, his mighty men, right? I mean, you want to talk about guys who can sling an arrow, um, fight lions, take on tons of warriors and soldiers and beat them all. Um, and these were King David and his mighty men. On the other hand, you have a John the Baptist. How would you like your kid to turn out like this guy? He lives out in the wilderness, eats, you know, honey, uh, locusts dipped in honey, wears camel fur and a leather belt around him, and nobody knows him for about 30 years. And then he just emerges and, and does some crazy things, right? And yet God's using all that. So, so when we think about this, clearly it's not the physical, the culture traits that God rejects. God had a plan for these two very different men. Now, when we think about this, you say, well, okay, Isaac was one way and Esau was the other way. And God's just going to separate them and make them two different nations and they're not responsible for anything. Well, no, man's responsible for their sin. And that's why I wrote in there, there's a human responsibility, right? Very, there's very different outcomes, but there's human responsibility. So Esau, and I want you to think about this, in, as you study the text all through, and I'll show you a few verses here, he lives a life of a total pagan. There's nothing in the text ever that shows us that Esau loves God that does anything that's not filled in pride. And you say, well, what about when he came out to meet Jacob? We can get, we'll get into that in a couple of weeks. I'll show you what he was doing was a, a very proudful posture in that. And, and he grows up in this very wealthy family. So think about this. His grandfather Abraham made all this wealth. He's provided all this for him. And he, he being the firstborn at this time, should be the inheritor. The, the firstborn, the, the, the birthright should go to him he should be completely engaged with this outfit. This is going to be his deal for all intents and purposes um, before God does what God does here, right? And yet, he never seems to be engaged with the family. He seems to love the field and being away from the family, displaced from the family business, and he is not preparing to take over this massive enterprise that Jacob had now. Esau shows no interest in this family side. There's, there's nothing there to become the leader. Esau seems to have um, a, a despise for the things of God in that he is going to reject his birthright. And we'll see that in a moment. In fact, there's several texts, and we'll see this in the next few weeks. He does things on purpose to grieve his parents. He, he marries Hittites and and he marries a, a granddaughter of Ishmael, and it grieves his parents, the Bible said. So as you study him, he begin, you begin to realize that his sin is willful at times. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16, this is in the verse, says this, that there be no immoral or godly persons, talking about our character as Christians in the church, there should be no immoral or godly person, now listen to this, like Esau, Hebrews 12, 16. Esau is the standard of what we're not supposed to be like, Hebrews 12 says. He's a godless, immoral person who sold his birthright for a single meal, the writer of Hebrews says. Esau marries multiple women, mostly 
all outside the descendants of Shem, which would be the line of Israel, and even marries a granddaughter of Ishmael, Genesis chapter 28, verse 9. Yet the Bible tells us, and this is what's disturbing, that Isaac loved him. You can see where it's getting difficult now. Things get blurry and fuzzy because Isaac's supposed to be the patriarch. Um, He's supposed to be the one that shows the way, and Abraham taught him, and Isaac teaches the boys, and so forth. And yet, there's a favoritism going on with this group. And guess what Jacob's going to do with Joseph someday? The same thing. He's going to repeat the sin of favoritism. Rebecca seems, if you study this, Rebecca seems to overcompensate for Jacob, right? Jacob's kind of hanging on his skirt, and Esau's out there slinging arrows at the nearest tree when they're little. Now, the Hebrew word for Jacob here for a peaceful man is an interesting word. Um, it's Tom in the, in the Hebrew, and it's often translated blameless by psalmist and, and certainly in the book of Job. And so it's interesting. The Bible never says anything negative about Jacob. Now, Jacob has his troubles, right? We're going to see it. But God doesn't personally say things like he says those about Esau here. And, and it's, it's amazing. In fact, Jacob's name is used over 120 more times in the Old Testament than Abraham's name is used. Jacob becomes uh, such a, a household name within the Scriptures. Now, as he gets older, he, he often mimics his faithless actions of his father and grandfather, right? He starts to um, not live the way God would want him to. And this is a reminder that, that God is going to do something outside of Jacob, And he's going to bring them aside despite the sinners that are there. Now, we're going to get to this passage in a couple weeks, but we're going to finally have to deal with this great statement, first in Malachi chapter 1 and then later in in Romans 9, where God says, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. We're going to have to deal with that passage as we move forward in this. But you begin to see that they are going totally different directions. One is going to create a, a nation that will do everything it can to destroy the coming of the Messiah. And the other one will be a nation that the Messiah comes through. And so you can see that they're completely at different ends. Satan's working greatly with these nations that come out of Esau. And God is protecting the seed in this nation. And so these rivalries have clashed for thousands of years, and they're still clashing. And God, by his grace, though Israel is under the discipline of hand of God, still protects that nation. Because I don't think he's done with them. And he's going to show his grace and mercy through them. Now, how about some Christological implications? I just have a few minutes left here. See how far I can get. Um, Understanding some terms here might be helpful. The birthright term. Okay, because he's going to sell a birthright here. Birthright and firstborn are to be connected, um, but yet they're used separately, right? So a birthright is often given to the firstborn, and, um, and yet there's exceptions within the scriptures when we talk about firstborn and blessing and all those things. God chooses Abel over Cain, of course, Jacob over Esau, Judah over Reuben, Eph- uh, Ephraim over Manasseh, Moses over Aaron, and David over his older brother. So God does some things, but it's important to understand that this is the natural way that man has. Firstborn and birthright go to that first child. Now, the birthright was the proper way to transfer, transfer wealth. This is how the wealth stayed in the family and moved down. And so it contained properties and wills and the family name and everything that um, Isaac had becomes Jacob's, right? And we, we see that in verse... Oh, I lost that verse. He says, where he gave gifts to the sons. Uh, verse 6, Abraham gave gifts to his sons, sent them away from Isaac. Now notice, to the, to the land of the east. That's not the verse from after. There's a verse here where it says he gave all to Isaac. I'll find that in a minute. So God's certainly pointing to something through this. Now, firstborn. I want to talk about firstborn for just a minute here. When Moses stood before Pharaoh, he says something on behalf of God. He says, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So that's an amazing term because you go, well, wait a minute, Israel isn't a very old nation. Egypt was a long round, a long and established long before, e- for, before Israel was. Um, and when you think about Israel, at that point when Moses says that, 
Israel is just a group of slaves. They have no government. They have no land. They have no birthright. They're, they're a nation born in slavery. And yet God says, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So it's a great term that we see. Now, in the nation of Israel, once the law was given, they were to offer up first fruits or, or first, firstborn things, right? So, so even when they took in their agriculture, they took the first of that crop and they offered it to God. When lambs were born, they would take that firstborn male lamb, particularly on Passover, and offer that to God. And so these were just patterns that God developed within, within the nation. So this, this term, this all points to the fact that the nation of Israel understood first tar, firstborn heritage. They knew what this was supposed to be. And yet God was going to reverse this. It's verse 5 that I was looking for. Notice in verse 5, um, Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. It's very important to think through that. Because when we get to the New Testament, and this is where the Jehovah Witness people fall off the table pretty quickly, um, Mormons and a bunch of others, is when the term firstborn comes up in relationship to God. John 1.14 says the word became flesh and he dwelt among us and we beheld the glory of the only begotten, the unique one. This is where they will say, see he was born, he's not God. But he has called this only begotten, this firstborn of God because he has given all things to the Son, right? So, so think about a few other verses with me. One you know very well, Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he, Jesus, would be the firstborn among many brethren. So that term is not saying that Jesus was born uh, like us born. He's been always existed. He's equality with God. But yet it's telling us just like Isaac got everything, he gave all things to Isaac, so God gave all things to Jesus. And Jesus himself, after his resurrection, Matthew chapter 28, says, the Father has given me all authority and power. Every knee, Philippians 2, will bow before me. He has been granted all of those things. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the first, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And more the Jehovah's Witnesses will run with that. But it means he simply owns creation. Everything in creation, every, every atom, everything unseen and seen has been now given to Jesus Christ. He owns all of it. The Father said it's yours now. Colossians 1.18, he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So there's another term used. Well, how are we going to be raised from the dead? Because Jesus was raised from the dead. God gave him victory over death. Through Jesus, we get victory over, the de over death ourselves. He's the firstborn. He has it. He has it all. He has all of us. He can resurrect us all from the dead. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6. This is the discussion between angels. And he said, when he again brings forth the firstborn into the world. This is a verse that we get attacked on. He said, he said and let all the angels of God worship him. So there's a verse that they love to run with. We brought the firstborn. Well, it's a verse strictly about the power and authority. So when you, when you think about what's going on in our text, Abraham has died. He's left everything to Isaac. Isaac is going to die, and by tradition, he's to give everything to Esau. But that's not what's going to happen. Because God has a different plan. And by the sovereignty of God, he's going to flip that role Esau's going to despise his birthright, thus despise God. Jacob, not the greatest guy in the world, but will go on to receive that birthright, receive all things given to him, and he will go on to bring the Messiah through his seed. Now, oh my goodness. Um, 29 for 34, I'll have to save for later. This gets really fun as you get down to the end of this because these, bo these boys are born, but we'll, we'll tackle this um, We'll finish this and get into 26 next week. But um, what we're going to see is these two kids come out of the womb and now they're going to grow up. And oh man, you're going to see passion over promise. And, and passion's good. I, I, I think I'm a passionate preacher. Um, but passion can get you in trouble. <laughs> oh, you're going to see where Esau's life is controlled totally by his flesh. 
And it's going to cost him greatly. And it's not only going to cost him, but it's going to cost millions and millions of lives that have fought because of this. Just because, what? He was hungry. The lost cannot control their flesh. I want you to know that. It's the difference between the saved and the lost. We, by the Spirit of God, though we don't always, but we can, we have all right to control our flesh through the Spirit. We have the ability to do that. God gives us strength over that. The lost don't. Can you imagine giving everything you have, including your descendants and who they're going to work or be slaves for a bowl of chili? That's where the flesh is powerful. So we'll look at that next week and finish that out. I knew I wasn't going to get through this. It's too much of a, the, a big passage here to get through. But praise the Lord. Is that good? The understanding? There's such good history here to understand, but there's excellent application to these things. Guard your marriage. Obey God. Read his word and obey his word. Just say, God, help me be obedient. Oh, you'll have so much more joy. Your children will be blessed. There's so many good things that come out of when we obey God particularly in our marriages and with our families. Father, thank you for the reminder here, Lord, of you, you, you're, you're greater than all the problems that these men create. And we thank you for that. But yet we do see the consequences of rejection of your truths, Lord. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us um, be men and women, boys and girls, young people, who say, oh, Lord, I want to obey you in all things. Will you give me strength to do that? And Lord, help us meditate on you. Lord, there's many, many questions many of us have. We, we don't know what you're doing in certain areas. We, we lack wisdom to, to know what you want us to do in, in, in maybe a business thing or a family thing or whatever it is. May we take time away and go search your character and spend time with you and ask you and pray to you, Lord. May we learn to love you more while we wait for that answer. But give us Give us that desire to hunger and thirst after you more than we hunger and thirst after other things, Lord. Father, thank you for these great reminders. Bless this group of people. Give us a good night, Friday night, as we begin to celebrate the birth of Christ, the incarnation, Lord, as we kick off the, this wonderful season. Lord, uh, may you be blessed and may the people be greatly encouraged by that evening. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.